And so Revelation chapter 3, verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you that these words have been recorded for us who live in the last days so that we may run swiftly and walk with you on the path and follow hard after our Lord Jesus Christ. So we would pray that you would take these words that we have read over the course of a couple of months, that you would press them to our hearts. We pray especially that you would open our ears to hear what your word has to say to us this day regarding these things. Please, Lord, may these dear saints not see me, but may they hear the Lord Jesus, even as we speak about these things. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know about you, but I like finding old letters and journals. I remember uh, cleaning out somebody's attic, and there was an old journal in there. It was like a travel journal. And I started reading, and it was not just about the travel. It was about the heart of the person who was writing. Come across old letters from my grandparents, and I remember the same sort of thing, getting a glimpse into who they are, other than just the folks that you know I grew up with and had Thanksgiving dinner with and so on. Um, And so letters like that reveal the heart of a person if they're willing to invest. It was said of St. Augustine that um, he would spend most of his time in the evenings writing letters to people who were uh, seeking counsel, people who were seeking instruction, um, and that or recommendations for a position, a job, or something like that. Letters became important things. So what we're doing is we're looking at these letters in in the book of Revelation, and I want to wrap up some thoughts here. We've gone and we've seen these letters to seven different churches, and they have have, um, been written by the last apostle who is alive. All the other apostles have died. John the apostle is the last and the oldest. He's 90-some years old. And he has been instructed by the Lord Jesus, write this down. This is the last official word from the Lord Jesus Christ through his last official apostle for the church age, for the church in the age to come to pay attention to. That should kind of pique our ears a little bit. For the Lord chooses to write this last letter to his church through the apostle who loved him deeply and who loved the church deeply. I think we get a sense of that from 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And so whatever this encouragement is, it has lasted so far for a season of 2,000 years. Because when the apostles wrote, they wrote with the heart of Christ for the Church of Christ. Now, when I read these letters, every one of them ends exactly with this sentence, he who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Seven times we hear that phrase. It should cause us to sit up and take notice. To say something twice is to draw attention to it. Um, My mom used to count to three. We'd always test her on the first two. (laughs) But Jesus is not really... Jesus is not expecting a test from us. He's expecting us to hear him. To say something twice is to draw attention to it. To say, some, to say something three times is to put bold face, put it in bold face type. To say something four times is to make it bold and italicize it. To say something five times is to make it bold, italicize it, type it all out in capitals. I had a woman in my first church who fell in love with email. This is when email was just first starting to get going, okay? So I would get emails from her. They'd be typed in all capital letters. And the sentences had a minimum of five exclamation points after them, a minimum. Sometimes she had ten exclamation points. And when when I read her emails, I always felt like she was yelling at me. When you get an email, it's typed all in capitals. Is that how you feel? Somebody yelling at you? Wake up! I want you to listen to me! I'm having a good time on this vacation! I was going to shout it louder, but I thought, no, we we don't need to do that to your eardrums. So I always felt like she was yelling at me, but I've got another friend who I've known for 45 years, and in the 45 years that I've known her, she has never raised her voice. Never. When she wants you to hear something, she leans in close. And she says it softly several times. I want you to pay attention, Chris Baker. I've got something important to say. I'm talking, talking, talking. And she leans in close and says, I want you to pay attention to this, Chris Baker. And eventually, it gets a hold of you, doesn't it? Because you know how, I know how I am when people are shouting at me. I'm not listening. Right? But when they start whispering, I have to listen. And the fact that Christ sends these letters to these churches, each with his closing phrase, is a strong indicator that this is what the Lord of the church wants his church to pay attention to until he returns. He's not yelling. And he's saying the same thing because he wants his message to get through. I want you to pay attention to this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The Lord knows that it's going to be some time before he returns, so this is a continuing message to the church throughout the age. And we've seen that all the letters have been constructed in the same way. 
The pattern is quickly recognized by nearly every reader. And because of that pattern of Jesus saying something about himself, some quality, whether he's got eyes of flaming fire or whether he is the one who is, has been dead and is now alive or whether he is uh, the one who has feet of burnished bronze, he just says something about himself. And then there is a word of appreciation, and then there is a word of rebuke. I have something to say about you. I have something against you. And then there is the challenge. Uh, If you turn from this, then this is how you will be blessed. And if you conquer, then this is the promise and the reward, which is yours. And so as these letters have been constructed the same way, this pattern, which is quickly recognizable, there are some principles that we can draw from all of these statements to these churches. And there are six principles that we're certain of. So I want to touch on those very quickly. The first principle is this. The Lord of the church has something to say to us. Now, at first, that sounds really obvious, but I need to lay out a caution here. You and I live in a very individualistic age. You know, we kind of open our Bibles and we read our Bibles and we think, oh, this is just being spoken to me, when in fact, it might not be. This individualistic age is so characteristic of America of Americans because we are immersed in an ocean of individualism, autonomy and privacy. It's reinforced by the i world, iPhone, iPod, iPad, i whatever, where by carrying around your own personal screen, you can watch videos, play games and send personal emails while standing in a group of friends sometimes texting one another, right? It's reinforced by statements such as, you know, you can have your personal beliefs about Jesus, just don't push them on me. That's reinforcing individualism, that you have no connection to anybody else, that really, whatever your thing is, it's your thing. How many times have we heard people say, well, you know, I... I, I, That's great for what you want to believe, but I believe this. As though there's no corporate connection to anybody. And individualism being one of the hallmarks of our day is also reinforced by the notion of Jesus and me. Which communicates that the Christian life is just a relationship with Jesus. And it doesn't seem to include much else, especially the church. This is not helped by the English, wherein the word you is not easily distinguished, whether it's singular or plural. Which is why I kind of like the South sometimes, y'all. Because the old King James doesn't work anymore. Ye shall do this. Yeah, who really pays attention to that? But y'all understand y'all, right? I didn't used to like y'all until I really started thinking about English. 
So the problem comes in when we see passages like this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and we immediately apply them only to ourselves, and we don't apply them to the whole body as a body, as a group, as a community. So when I say this, what I'm saying is the Lord of the church has something to say to Princeville Presbyterian Church. Princeville Presbyterian Church. We have to start thinking of his criticisms as directed to this church. We have to start thinking of his concerns as directed to this church, as Christ's body in this place. So take your individualistic hat off and think like you are a church statesman that you are on the board of directors of Princeville Presbyterian Church because that's how you have to think of this. This is a word to the church. And you've got to ask yourself, what does Jesus want this church to do? Are you there? Take your individualistic hat off. You are now a body with a prayer that you have one ear. And so I ask this question. If there was a lost letter, an eighth letter, and it was directed to us, Princeville Presbyterian Church, what would it say? What would it contain? Keep the question there. Don't try to answer it yet. Let me work through a couple of other things. The next five principles will help us to discern this, but we need to do it. What our Lord would say to us, this church. Principle number two. The Lord of the church assumes that our character, our church character, can change. It can change for good or it can change for ill. Consider the uh, church in Ephesus, which had a passionate first love that uh, the Lord said, you know, this is how God worked a plenteous salvation from before the foundation of the worth, uh, foundation of the world, that uh, you were elect in Christ, and then that was worked out in time. And then it lost that first love. That's a church that went the downward slide. Consider the Laodicean church, which had a full heart when it started, but has now become half-hearted. It's lost its passion for things spiritual. Not just lost a love for the Lord, but lost a passion for things spiritual. On the other hand, consider the church in Philadelphia and Smyrna, which has held on tightly and has struggled to maintain the testimony and is now facing opposition. And Jesus says, I'm not going to ask anything further of you because you are already standing strong. Press on. So our church character is either going to improve or it's going to decline. Christ sees that a church character can change. That character can change 
in the direction of decline because of wounds received in the past and not acknowledged. It can decline because of attitudes taken up in the past and not abandoned. Now, let me give you an illustration. Princeville Presbyterian's choice to leave the PCUSA was the right good choice. Because you saw the long decline in the direction that the denomination was going. What you did was the right response to the long, slow slide into spiritual compromise. What you did not realize or were not aware of is that you had been drinking from a poisoned cup for about a generation and maybe a little bit longer. And that poisoned cup impacted how you actually received the change. It affected how you'd respond to the required course correction of moving into the denomination that you're in presently. Okay? A decline in character can be because there were changes that should have taken place and you didn't want them. You wanted things left alone. It can be because of some congregational sin or some leadership sin that has never been repented of. Character can change in the direction of greater health because there's a conscious decision to do the right thing no matter how hard it was. There's a willingness to sacrifice more than you planned because of your love for Christ, and he was pleased to bless that. It requires us to pay attention to ourselves and to the stern comments the Lord makes to us. It requires us to give constant heed to ourselves as a church and ask, which direction are we headed? Are we growing in holiness and love for the Lord? Are we slip-sliding away? So let me ask, what is the character of Princeville Presbyterian Church? And which direction is it moving? Do we believe that the character of Princeville Presbyterian Church can change for the better? And what's that going to take? The first thing it'll take is truly believing in the daily, breathing, dynamic, resurrection power of Christ Jesus in us. And he does. He upholds us. And he says, I give you my resurrection power. The question is, what are we doing with it? Principle number three. The Lord of the church will not compromise his standard of corporate holiness for us. He won't compromise his standard of corporate holiness for us, Princeville Presbyterian Church. The Lord did not shed his blood on the cruel cross just so that we'll feel good about ourselves individually. He didn't do it so we could rest in confidence that we get to go to heaven. Now, don't get me wrong. He grants to us that grace. He loves us right where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. Increasingly, he's interested in our holiness and our greater sanctification, and he's interested in this for his church. 
which means we all have a vested interest in one another's holiness. Remember, you're taking your individualistic hat off and you're thinking about being a member of a body. We are interested in one another's holiness. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 and 16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Let me repeat that. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Do you know how noble you are in the earth? You are noble in the earth. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And the Lord of the church will not compromise his standard of corporate holiness Scripture speaks to us uh, to a group collectively, a body. And the Lord is not going to compromise his expectation of holiness. And what we need to remember is the only way we can have holiness is if God is dwelling here. The only way we can have holiness is if God is dwelling here. The only thing that made the tabernacle holy was when God descended and the smoke of his glory filled the tabernacle and the Shekinah shone forth. And the same thing during Solomon's day when he finished his prayer and the Shekinah glory descended upon the temple and there was this flow of holiness that came out. And so we must ask, is God here? We must ask it for the sake and the health of the church. Is God here? If so, what are those clear markers of holiness so that we can point and say, yes, this is proof that God is here with us. Now, please be careful. You don't need to hear this in a sermon only. You all, as Christ's body, there it is again, y'all. You all, as Christ's body, in this place, need to talk about this. You need to talk about, is God here? Call one another up on the phone. Do you think God is in our church? How do we know? This is not for individualistic absorption, sort of like, you know, dinner by yourself. This is for digestion together. And maybe we need to talk about it in a congregational meeting. Have a congregational meeting for the sole purpose of asking the question, is God dwelling here? And how do we know? 
in my opinion, would be one of, what do we have, 80 in the membership? Because I don't have all knowledge. Principle number four. The Lord of the church values what this church has done in his name. In every one of the letters except that to Laodicea, the Lord commends what each church has done in his name. We're told that the Ephesians were made for good works which were prepared beforehand. With whatever failings and shortcomings they had, or whatever struggle they were struggling against, those things that have been done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ do not get nullified by their folly. See, that's how we work. That's how you and I work, right? We do good things, do good things, do the good things, right? And all of a sudden we do something really stupid and we go, okay, that wipes all that out. You know, we're in the business of keeping, you know, all or nothing scores. It's like the next time we do a thing, we're sort of, you know, flipping dice. Double or nothing. No. What we have done in the name of the Lord and what we have done that was to honor Christ remains of value. The Lord recognizes that and he appreciates it. So all of our faithful service, whether it's, uh, whether it's in the various kinds of ministries, and I don't mean just now, I mean in our history as well. We're 185 years old. Have there been people in the past who have done honorable, good, and holy things for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that Jesus looks upon that and says, yes, these are my people. And we, we live on that. We build on that. And so... When we do something foolish, it doesn't nullify the good things that have been done for the Lord. So let us not treat it as a double or nothing kind of deal. He recognizes it as his own work in the church, and he rejoices in it. But that has to go along with principle number five, which is this. The Lord of the church exposes what this church, Princeville Presbyterian Church, wants to hide about itself. I'm sure that one of the churches wanted to hide the fact that they had a Jezebel living among them and promoting false teaching and promoting sexual immorality. I'm sure that they wanted to hide the fact that there were the Nicolaitans who had a teaching that was directly contrary to the gospel. Jesus is not going to let you hide that. He's not going to let it happen. Do you remember from different parts of Scripture how the Lord would confront his people with their failings? Abraham's wife, Sarah, laughed when the Lord told Abraham that she would be with child the following year. Ha! Are you kidding? I'm 90. Look at this old man. Do you think this is really going to happen? And the Lord said, why did you laugh? I didn't laugh, but you did. The Lord was not going to let her hide it. Because when we hide sin, it festers. When we hide those kinds of things, 
They work on us from the inside in unseen kinds of ways. And I'm sure you remember King David, when he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, God sent his prophet to confront David, and David's immediate response was, yep, it's true, that's exactly what I did, I repent. God does this so that his beloved children can turn and be cleansed and be effective. But this expectation is not only for his children individually. This was the expected response of the Israelites as a people, as a nation. As in the case of when Josiah found the law and tore his robes and repented because they had not obeyed the law for a generation or two. He immediately repented and humbled himself before the Lord, knowing that the people needed mercy from God's displeasure. In Daniel chapter 9, when he learns of the Lord's declaration that his people would be exiled 70 years, Daniel humbles himself and confesses his own sin and then also the sins of his people, looking for the Lord's mercy and restoration. The book of Nehemiah begins with Nehemiah confessing the sins of his people for which they deserved exile. And later on in chapter 9, Nehemiah leads the people who have returned to Jerusalem in national confession for their sin against God. They held a solemn assembly for the purpose of repentance. Now, my point in bringing these passages to mind is to show that the right response when God points out what we've done wrong is to come to him humbly and in repentance. And let us not think that that means only personal and private repentance. Churches need to repent and confess their sin. That's what's going on in these two chapters in Revelation. Jesus is calling his church to repent. When Christ confronts his church, the proper response is to humble ourselves and repent as a body, as a church, in sacred and solemn assembly publicly. This needs to be led by the leaders of the church, and by the leaders, please hear me carefully, I don't mean only the elders and deacons, but anybody who's got a position of leadership, teachers, ministry leaders, committee chairpersons, all of those who have already shown that they have an abiding interest in the life and the health of the church. Now, does this church need to repent of some things? Well, let me offer a couple of possibilities that I've learned over the last year. There are a lot of frustrations of whatever the changes were taking place underneath the previous minister here because he was faithfully applying Reformed theology to the practice of this church. And there's a lot of people who just wadded up their frustrations and threw them at his feet. And rejected him. Gee, you think we need to repent from that? There's probably a lot of 
backbiting and undertow from all of that. In fact, I'm sure there's still some talk about it. And if you are listening to that talk and affirming that talk, and you're not rebuking the people for their ungodly behavior, you think that's a sin against the Lord? You think we need to repent as a body? Well, only if we want God's blessing. If we want to continue to decline into Sodom and Gomorrah, wherever we're headed, that's the way to do it. Are there other things in the past that have been done, actions taken, interactions that have engaged in, that have resulted in actually a demise of character for this church? We need to repent as a body. Because God's interested in our holiness, and he will dwell among us, but he won't dwell among us if we're dirty, if we hold on to sin, and we treasure that more than we treasure him. The reason that we go through these letters and we think about these churches is not so that we can really look at them and say, man, they are a mess. No. The Corinthians were a mess. The Philippians were a mess. The Ephesians were a mess two or three times. There's not a church on earth that isn't a mess. But let us respond as people who know that the Lord loves us. It is the, 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 the Lord loves his church enough to rebuke it and to call it back to faithfulness. And when we do that, he rushes in with cleansing. He rushes in with grace. He rushes in with his spirit and his strength in order to restore us and to make us useful and fruitful and vigorous and vital and to flourish. Now, why do I tell you this at this point? Because it would break my heart to see a new minister come in here and get gobbled up because there are some old sins that haven't been dealt with, that haven't been repented of, that haven't been, that haven't been confronted, and, and they just carry on and bubble and boil forward. <clears throat> Several years ago, I had a scar, or rather, I had a, a wound on my elbow from my bicycle. I was riding along, and I fell off the bike, and I slid about 15 feet or so on the gravel, and it just sort of scuffed the skin away. And I thought, oh, it's just a scrape like any other bicycle wound that I've had. And five weeks later, it was still not healed. And there was a woman in my church... No, there was a woman in the church I was attending. It wasn't my church. There was a woman in the church that I was attending who was a doctor, and she happened to see my elbow, and she said, what's with this? I don't ever really wear short sleeves, but I was that day. She said, what's going on there? I said, oh, I fell off my bike. Really? How long ago? Five weeks ago. And it's not healed yet? No. She said, so what does your doctor say? Well, I haven't seen the doctor. I don't want to see the doctor. Well, okay, 
Do you want it to heal? Well, yeah, I'd like it to heal. Then here's what you need to do. You need to soak that thing in Epsom salts and warm water, warm water with Epsom salts, and then when it's all soft and, you know, uh, soaked, then you have to scrape off the dead tissue. Otherwise, it's not going to heal. Oh, okay. So how many times do I have to do that? Every day. Really? Do you want it to heal? Yes, I want it to heal. Then you have to do that. So it was painful, but I did it. Three weeks later, the wound had healed. It was painful. I didn't want to do it, but I wanted it to heal. When we, don't, when we don't deal with things that we know are in the past and we don't confess them before the Lord, they're like a wound that festers. It sits there, and it might kind of cover over with sort of a hard surface so that it doesn't, you know, make things messy. But the reality is it's not healed until the infection and the dead tissue is removed and the Lord can come with his strength and his grace. And the great physician is ready to do that. The great physician responds instantly when we're ready to do that. Let's say an eighth letter was found from the Lord Jesus Christ, an intended recipient was Princeville Presbyterian Church. What would it contain? How would the Lord present himself to us? The one who stands among the golden lampstands? The one who died and came to life again? And what about the Lord Jesus do we need to see? What would the Lord of the church commend us for? What would he value from the last 184, 185 years? I bet there would be much. Because this church has struggled to remain faithful, even during some very difficult times. Would the one who is interested in our holiness rebuke us? Would he have sought to hide or ignore or pretend that it was no big deal? Or would he bring it into the open and call us out? In his love and commitment to us, what promise would he make to us? And what reward would he hold out for us? He is still the Lord of all, the Lord of the church. And he still speaks. I want you to pay attention, Princeville Presbyterian Church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.